Holy Spirit seminar on how the Holy Spirit uh, helps us in evangelism and growing the church. Um, I love this whole concept of how evangelism gets done. And in fact, uh, I remember when Pat Steves handed me this book uh, that was written by Dr. Elliot. He handed it to me about six months ago. I said, you got to read this, man. And uh, so we've been reading it. We're like, well, let's pray into that and see what happens. And then stuff like that that's in his book started happening here. All of a sudden, you'd show up on people's doors and, and uh, you'd pray and they'd be healed. And then they'd come to church, <laughs> you know, and, um, and the Lord leading people. So many of the things that are in this book uh, are things that we have begun to experience already as a church. So I'm so excited about this because this having Dr. Elliot here allows us to have more of a roadmap for what this looks like going forward. And I think it's gonna be really helpful because there's some people here that would have an evangelical background, some that would have a charismatic background, some that would have something different. And this is gonna help us to know when we, as we come from some of these different backgrounds, what does this look like when a move of the Holy Spirit happens in our church? So I am so excited you're here, and, and if there might have been a few of you that were serving in children's ministry, or you're at another church this morning, so I'm going to give you the, like the, the tiny bio on, on Dr. Elliot, if you didn't get it. Planted a church outside of Ottawa for 22 years, grew it from a zero to 1,300, but not in a straight line, came to a crisis of faith where he really had to rely on the Holy Spirit to begin to move in that congregation. He's taught pastoral ministries at Kingswood University for 12 years in Sussex, preparing our next generation of, of pastors and leaders for our church. And he has been uh, recently, was it last summer, elected? Last August, elected as our national superintendent uh, to help the Wesleyan Church surge forward uh, all across the country. So it, it's a real privilege to have Dr. Elliot here. Uh, I'm sure he doesn't like to have all kinds of uh, titles and honors award uh, lauded on him, but I mean, if we were in another church, we'd be saying the Archbishop is here. So we welcome the Archbishop to the stage. So if you were going to go to Toronto, which direction would you go? And the answer is it depends on where you are when the question is asked. If you're in Vancouver, you would have to go east. If you're in Yukon, you'd have to go south. If you were in London, England, you'd have to go way to the west. If you're in Florida, you gotta go north. You say, why are you saying that? Because much of what I'm gonna be sharing today makes absolutely no sense unless we understand where we are as a church. And I'm not talking just the Wesleyan Church, I'm talking about churches by and large in North America. It makes no sense what I'm gonna be sharing unless you understand where the church is. So I'm gonna start off with the bad news. I will promise you I will get to the good and exciting stuff eventually, but I've got to start with the bad news. Uh, when I was born, I was born in the 1950s. In the 1970s, a uh, very, very few percentage of Canadians said that they had no religious affiliation. The most recent stat that's available is 2014 that says about a quarter of our population now has no affiliation whatsoever uh, with the church. Uh, about 19, 10 to 19% of Canadians um, attend church on a weekly basis. I was the chairman of the ministerial group for um, part of, of Ottawa, and I had access to all the stats about all the churches, and I mean everybody, Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Baha'is, you name it. I had access to all their stats. I know that in the city of Canada, where I was pastoring, 12% 
of people who were in church on any Sunday of any type of religious gathering, meaning 88% of people in our community were never in, in church. Americans are in church about two to four times more likely than Canadians are, so they're way better at being in church. 48% of Canadians never, ever, ever go to church, meaning not a funeral, not a wedding, not a baby dedication, never are they in church. Americans much more likely to be in church than are Canadians. Our highest unchurched regions in Canada is British Columbia and the province of Quebec. If you're an American, it's Oregon, Nevada, Washington, Alaska, New England states. Most Canadians believe you don't even have to affiliate or attend a church to be a Christian. That's the reality. There are approximately 340,000 churches of all denominational stripes in North America. What percentage do you suppose are either plateaued or declining in attendance? What percentage do you think? Okay, the most recent stat says someplace between 80 to 85% of churches are plateaued or they're declining. Of the churches that are growing, the vast majority why they're growing is simply accounted for because babies are being born or because of the transfer of believers between Christians, churches. So a Nazarene starts going to a Wesleyan, Wesleyan starts going to a Pentecostal, Pentecostal starts going to a Salvation Army. It's just the circulation of the saints. Of all the churches, of 340,000 churches in North America, less than 1% are growing because of conversion growth. Isn't that staggering? Less than 1% are growing. I've got, a, I've got some pens up here, thanks. Are growing because people are actually being saved. There was a study that was done in the city of Calgary not too long ago, and they actually tracked where is the growth coming from in these churches. They could account for 90% of the growth of churches that were growing was just the circulation of the saints. And so most churches are actually not growing because the people are actually getting saved. 75% of churches never break through 75%. The average attendance is someplace around 90, and almost no churches ever come remotely close to coming to 350 in attendance. That's some of our realities. That stat right there was the one that bothered me the most during my doctoral dissertation. We are not a large country. We've got about 35 million people roughly in Canada. During the 10-year period that I was looking at, 8.7 million fewer Canadians identified with the Protestant churches than in the previous 10 years. That is a staggering loss from the evangelical and Protestant churches. We're closing churches way faster than we're opening churches. Someplace around 6,000 churches are, are closed every year. Something like about 14, 1,500, something like that are being planted. It did level off for a short period of time in 2009. We were planting churches about the same rate that we were closing churches, but it has tipped way over again. We are closing way more churches than we're opening. We have a severe shortage of pastors in North America. Uh, for a short period of time, I pastored in New York, uh, New York State, and when I applied for my green card, the immigration official, that when he asked me, he says, matter of fact, he got very nasty with me and my family, and he says, why should I let you into the United States? And I said, because you've got a severe pastoral shortage. I said, 20 to 30% of your churches at any given moment are looking for a pastor. He goes, oh, I didn't know that. And he filled up my green card. But that's not just true in the States. It's also true in Canada. Churches cannot fill the pulpits. We're graduating about half the number of graduates from our Bible colleges and our seminaries are actually needed because of the graying of the, of the clergy. 
we've got an extremely high dropout rate of pastors in ministry for all kinds of reasons, whether it's burnout or financial or moral failure or whatever the reason, there's an extremely high drop rate of pastors. Now, I was born in the 1950s. In the 1900s, almost all Canadians were in church. It was something close to 99%. It would be very, very unusual to find somebody in your community that was not in church. In the 1950s, when I was born, about two-thirds of people would be in church. And so most people in the neighborhood would go off to church, whether it's Catholic or Lutheran or Presbyterian or whatever it is. Most people are still going to church, about two-thirds. But notice what happens in 2000. Notice that you've actually got fewer people in church in 2000 than in 1900. Even though the church, even though the dark blue up there is the growth of the population in Canada, we've got fewer people in church than we did in 1900. And by the time, I, the most recent stat I can find is 2013, we've again, we've got less people in church even though the population is growing. Is there something wrong with the way we're doing church? So Canadians who attend church weekly, it is dropping. So the problem is most denominations, especially in Canada, are in very, very serious decline, losing hundreds of thousands of members from them, talking mainly about the mainline churches, Catholic, Presbyterian, Lutheran, that kind of church. And we go, well, we're an evangelical church. Maybe we're not as badly affected. The truth of the matter is, in that same 10-year period, most evangelical churches in uh, in North America, we're also losing members. And so we can't just point a finger and say, well, it's that type of church or that type of church. All Christian churches, for the most part, were losing membership hand over fist. This was a report that actually came out this year in 2019. The National Trust for Canada said they estimate that there's someplace around 28,000 churches of all denominations in North America. They are estimating in the next 10 years a third of all churches will close. That is staggering to think that a third of all churches in Canada are going to close in the next 10 years. So what's the problem? Well, at the same time that Canada, we had 8.7 million fewer people that were attending our churches. At the exact same time, look what was going on with the other world religions and the other cults in North America. Islam, in the same 10-year period, grew by 128,000, 128%. Hinduism, Sikhism, Wicca, Aboriginal spirituality. It's not that, that people are not spiritual, they don't long for some spiritual type of connection, they just were not finding it in churches. It's true also in the United States, although we're not in the States, so we won't talk about that. But this is an interesting stat I came across. The light blue over here, that's 2010. The darker blue is 2015. The light blue shows that in churches, almost 72% of churches had a full-time pastor in 2010. In 2015, it had dropped to 62%. And the income level of the average church in 2010 was 150,000. In 2015, it had dropped to 125,000. There is something serious going on in our churches. The Church of Jesus Christ has completely lost its moral persuasive abilities in North America. No longer does the government give a rip what the church has to say. If nobody has told you this, I will tell you this. The average person in Dieppe and Moncton could care less that this church exists. 
They would actually prefer there be a Costco or a Walmart here, although I know you got a new Costco. They would actually prefer there's something different here, the average person in this community, than the church here. We are no longer assaulting and lighting influence. George Barna, in his research, says that the local church has virtually no influence in our culture. The seven dominant spheres of influence are things like movies, music, television, books, internet, law, and family. The second tier of influencers is things like schools, peers, newspapers, radios, businesses. The local church amongst entities that have little to no influence on society. Tom Rainer, the Baptist researcher, said the same thing. He said, most churches today are simply irrelevant to most of society. The language you use, our methodologies, our music organizations, building sermons typically do not reflect the world in which most people live. They're a trip into nostalgic past at best or boring irrelevancy at worst. Neil Cole in his book, The Organic Church, says that we are no longer have the ability to change the world. There is something dramatically wrong with how we are doing church in North America. Leslie Newbegin is a missiologist. He studies the work of God's mission all over the world. He says North America is now a gospel-resistant culture. As much as we want to try and propagate the Christian message and we share good sermons and good music and all the rest of that, society is very, very resistant to what it is that we have to say. So if we were to take a few minutes, which I am going to do right now, and I'm going to ask you, why do you think the Christian church in North America is in such a mess? Why are we losing so many people from our churches Why are we no longer assaulting influence? So I'm looking for feedback here. Why do you think our attendance is going down, finance is going down, uh, we're not seeing people come to faith? You you tell me, what's going wrong right now? Say again? Okay, we've compromised with the culture. Christians are lazy. Say again? Okay, I'm I'm about three quarters deaf. That's true. So just a little louder. Satan, yeah. yeah, Satan's actively opposing the church, absolutely. Yes? The, the media's portrayal of evangelicals, that's true. Legalism, yeah, at the back, I saw a hand. Okay, so the way that we're living, the way that we prioritize our life, yes, right here? Say again. Yeah, too much controversy, infighting, things like that. Yes, and over here. People underestimate the importance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, well. In, in one Baptist church, they didn't mention the Holy Spirit just once a year. Yeah. You hang on to that. I'm going to come back to that one for sure. Yes. Well, it's basically what he said, but the absence of power. Yeah, absence of power. Yes, at the back. Say again. Yeah, okay. Somebody else? Why do you think we're in such a mess? I think Christian parents quite often fail their Okay, so we're not discipling the next generation? Parents not taking family discipleship seriously? I saw a hand over here. Yes? Lost our first love. Lost our first love? We're in a very tolerant society, so being taught in church is seen as being Right, okay. Yes, at the very back? Not enough support from the government. Not enough support from the government? The government doesn't support Christian churches? Yeah. Okay, perhaps. Yeah, there's somebody else in front of you. 
Watering down the gospel, yes. Okay, there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. Um, people that study this stuff say, did you know that every church has to replace someplace between 5, 6 to 11% of your members just to hold average attendance equal? Did you know that? Because someplace between 1 to 2% of your congregation is going to die this year. Someplace between 2 to 3% are going to move away. And you have between 2 and 6% are actually going to walk away from the faith. So if you want to have the exact same attendance next year as you have this year, you've got to actually grow by almost 11% because you're going to lose almost 11%. And people get lulled into the sense, well, we must be doing okay. Well, the Smith family, they're new in the church, and the Brown family, they're new. Yes, that's true. The Smith and the Brown family are new in the church, but you also lost a whole bunch of other families as well. So why are churches in decline? I will back this up in a few minutes, but did you know that the research is very consistent on this? It says only 1% of Christians will share their faith this year. One. George Barna, in his research, said it's closer to 25%, and I had never heard anybody say a number, anything remotely like that before, so I did some research into why George Barna, the researcher, was saying that it's closer into the low 20%. And he said that if you have any type of a religious conversation with somebody, that that would count as an evangelism conversation. So for instance, if you said to your next door neighbor, I go to church, or may I pray for you? He would count that as an evangelism conversation. I'm saying, that's not an evangelism conversation. That's a pre-evangelism conversation, but it's not evangelism until you get down to the issue of sin and repentance and Jesus dying on the cross and people having faith and surrender to Jesus. You're not having an evangelism conversation until you get to that level of conversation. One percent of Christians in North America will share their faith this year. Five percent in the entire lifetime will lead somebody else to the Lord. Imagine if that was true in the first century. On the day of Pentecost, 120 people in the upper room, and 1% of them shared the faith that year, meaning one or maybe two at the most would share their faith. And only 5% of the people in the upper room ever lead somebody to the Lord? Where would Christianity be today if that stat had been true 2,000 years ago? We wouldn't even exist. 50% of churches see zero conversions per year. And I go, are you kidding me? Are you telling me you can't walk up to little Johnny in Sunday school and say, would you like to ask Jesus in your heart? Uh Uh-huh. 50% of churches see nobody come to faith in Christ during the course of the year. Using our present methodologies, it takes 85 Christians to work for an entire year to see one person come to faith in Christ. I don't know if there's anybody in this room that's involved in sales, like insurance sales or car sales or something like that. Imagine if that stat was true, if you're in sales, that it takes 85 people to work for an entire year to get one sale. It's ridiculous. And then second reason why we've got problems in the church is because of things like church scandal, the high-profile abuse situations like what we saw in Quebec and other places, financial moral failures, the lifestyle and attitude behaviors that are no different than those who attend church and are changing doctrinal belief. That has got to be confusing to a non-Christian. 
that at one point the church says, this is a sin. Oh, no, it's not really a sin. We were just wrong. That has got to be confusing to a non-Christian. The unresponsiveness to a rapidly changing national landscape. Then in the 10-year period that I was looking at, 47% of the immigrants that came into Canada had come from a non-Christian country. How responsive are we being to the changing ethnic makeup in our communities? And so when I pastored in Ottawa, I noticed that one of the growing segments of population in our community, because when I went there in 1983, we were very white and very English speaking. And all of a sudden, because of the high-tech industry, I noticed there was a lot of Asian people moving in. And so I looked around and said, who's offering a worship service to Asians in a language other than English? In the entire city of Ottawa, there were two churches that offered anything in a, in the, in a, um, a Mandarin or, or Cantonese language. So I said, we'll do it. Do you know how much Mandarin Chinese I speak? We started off with eight people at our very first Mandarin Chinese service. I didn't understand a word for the next eight years when we had those services. Didn't understand because everything's done in Mandarin Chinese. Ay, 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 Pastor Steve. And then I would know I always had to stand up and, and I had to bring the morning message. And I have a translator beside me. And I loved the people and they loved us and we got up to about 160 people that were coming to our Mandarin church, let alone what was happening to our English and the French. The cults and religious, uh, religions are growing exponentially. Do you know that in North America there's over 2,000 different Christian groups? That has got to be confusing to a non-Christian. Well, you're a Baptist, Pentecostal, Charismatic, Methodist, like who are you? And around the world there's 38,000 different Christian denominations. Experts agree we are at least in a post-Christian society, if not a pre-Christian society. At the Bible College in Sussex, when I stand before my class and I tell them, I grew up in the 1950s and through the 60s and 70s when I was in elementary school and in high school, every week, every week at school, we had assembly. Every week, we had a visiting pastor that preached in our public school system. Every week, we sang hymns in our assemblies. The school would never, ever dream of putting a, a sports event on Friday night. Why? Why would the schools not put in a sporting event on Friday night? That's youth group night. Is any of that true today? You see, a Christian society, what I'm just describing, a post-Christian society means people still have a knowledge of what's Christian, they just don't practice it, but at least they know what's Christian. A pre-Christian society means they have completely lost all knowledge of even what's Christian. So I would stand at the back door after my sermons in, in Ottawa, and I'd be standing at the back door shaking hands as people are leaving. And this happened multi tons of times. People would walk up to me, that was a blankety blank good speech you gave today. By the way, what's the name of the book you were holding on to? And you mentioned that guy named Paul. Is he like your brother? We stopped telling people what book of the Bible we were preaching from. We started telling people what page of the Bible that we were preaching from. Because to say we're in the book of Ezekiel, you might as well have said some foreign language to them. So we're at least post-Christian, if not a pre-Christian society these days. 
the urbanization of society. Churches are widely seen as irrelevant, oppressive, patriarchal, money-oriented, out-of-date, out-of-touch, and boring. Um, I don't know if, you, if you'll just accept this from me because I know you don't know me, but I will tell you easily, easily, I have knocked on 80 to 85% of the doors in the city of Canada personally, knocked on the doors, rang doorbells, introduced myself as pastor. May I pray for you? Do you mind me asking, do you go to church? We'd love to have you come to our church. Oh, you don't go to church? Do you mind me asking why you don't go to church? You know what the number one reason was why people didn't go to church? No, because they felt they would be financially fleeced. That's the way society perceives the church. I'm not going to go through this Christian society. So why are churches in decline? We've got a leadership challenge. Anybody that studies anything to do with church health growth and leadership will tell you that a pastor's best years in a church begin around year to five to seven. That's when their best years begin. Most pastors at most churches transition someplace around every two to three years. They never, ever get into their best days. Now, I know Dr. Buckingham, very personal friend. Matter of fact, the first time I met Dr. Buckingham, I was sitting right where you're sitting right there. He came to this pulpit back in the 70s. He said, and I will say from the pulpit, that he said this. He says, we want to welcome almost everybody here this evening. He said, you probably noticed. He said, almost everybody. He said, see this guy down here? And he pointed right at me. He says, he thinks that I robbed the cradle and that my wife is too young for me. Because I did not believe that Lois was actually his wife. I thought it was his daughter. That's how I met Dr. Buckingham. And I know he was here for 40 years. That is so unusual for a pastor to stay that long. We've taught pastors how to pastor. We have not taught pastors very well how to be leaders. We're losing our teens hand over fist. Years ago, we would have something like close to 30% of the teens in a community would be in a church or a youth group. Now it's at best, it's something closer to 10% at the very best. And we're losing men from the church dramatically. Back when I was born in the 1950s, it was roughly 50-50% men and women. The blues represents the men, the, the teal represents the ladies. In 2008, which is the most recent stat that I can find, the average church on the average Sunday has got 39% men, 61% female. And it's even worse, the percentages, as you come into service in the church and midweek Bible studies and things of that nature. We are losing men hand over fist, and it's going down. Has anybody ever heard the phrase that goes something like this? Uh, we're going to have a strong children's ministry, and we're going to win the kids to the Lord. And if we win the kids to the Lord, we're going to see families come to faith in Christ. Anybody ever hear something that remotely sounds like that? Do you know what the actual stats are? The actual stats are if you win little Johnny to the Lord, little kid, the likelihood of the family getting saved is about 3%. If mom gets saved... What's the likelihood that Johnny and her husband or her living boyfriend are going to get saved? Well, it's a little better. It's 17%. If dad gets saved, what's the likelihood that mom and the kids will get saved? Somebody give me a guess. Ready? And when we fail to focus on men... 
Just pragmatically, we are shooting ourselves in the foot. Now, please, nobody tweet out of here and say, Steve doesn't believe in children's ministry and women's ministry. Do not say that. I was saved as a child. I was saved under a lady pastor. I believe in women's ministry, and I believe in children's ministry. But the biggest bang for the buck is if you can get men saved and excited about the Lord, you're probably going to have the whole family. So the insanity is, if we keep doing what we're doing, we're gonna keep getting what we're getting, which is terrible. Our churches are in decline. We're seeing almost nobody getting saved. Uh, Teens are leaving the church. Men are leaving the church. It's insanity to keep doing what we're doing and think that somehow we're gonna get a different result. Now the reality is, I'm not here because I believe that you wanna be a pathetic uh, statistic. I would not waste my time even being here if I thought that what I'm about to share with you is just gonna fall on deaf ears. I believe that you wanna see people one to Christ, and I I believe that you wanna see the glory and kingdom of God advancing in this community. So is there any hope? Yes, there's a ton of hope. Around the world, the Christian faith is doing wonderful, thank you very much. As a matter of fact, it's growing explosively outside of Western English-speaking countries. So for instance, the Assemblies of God in Africa, in the same time period that we lost 8.7 million, they grew from 2.1 million to 7 million. Their projected growth of all Christians in Africa going from 90 million to 1 billion is what their estimates are for 2015, 2050. In Korea, we knew in 1960, There was a total of 6,000 churches. In 1995, which is again the latest stat I can find, we knew it was up to 30. We were closing churches. They've six times the number of churches in the same time period. 1960, we knew of 600,000 Christians in, in Korea. In 1995, we knew of 91 million. In China, in 1950, the estimates were that there was about 1 million Christians. In the year 2000, it was 91 million. Their estimates, and nobody knows this for sure, but the estimates are we're seeing about 10,000 people come to faith in Christ in China every day. In India, 2000, we knew of about 50 million Christians. They're estimating by 2050, it'll be 125 million. And in Brazil, the church growth rate is twice the growth rate of the population. In Canada, our population was going like this. The number of churches and the number of people attended was going down. In Brazil, the churches were growing at twice the rate of the population. Is there any chance that maybe something the international Christian church can teach the North American church? Because if we keep doing it the way we're doing, we're not gonna be doing very much good. So while there are some denominations in North America that are losing thousands of members, there are some that are growing at a pretty impressive rate. About one out of every evangelical Christians now are attending a church of a thousand or more. And so there are some churches that are getting this thing figured out. Is there any hope? Even within declining denominations, there are some local churches that are turning the tide. Now, I have been at Adam Hamilton's church in in, um, Kansas City. Um, He's part of the United Methodist Church, which would be very similar to the United Church of Canada as a 
As a domination, the United Methodist Church, they would struggle with things like, was, is Jesus deity? Was there actually a virgin birth? Is there actually a literal heaven and hell? They would struggle with that kind of stuff. But here you've got this guy in this liberal, declining domination, and I've been at his church. It's a mega church. If I lived in Kansas City, that's where I would go. There's some that are getting this thing fixed, figured out. Paul Cho, who's actually just recently retired uh, in Seoul, Korea, and I've been at his church as well, uh, the estimates are someplace 400 to 700,000 people attending the church per weekend. I was there on a Tuesday morning for a prayer meeting. 12,000 people in the sanctuary for prayer meeting at 7 in the morning. I thought, this, and I had headsets on because it's all done in Korean, right? So I've got headsets on and somebody was doing a really, really poor job of translating it into English. But I thought, I'm really interested in what's going to happen here. And so Dr. Cho comes up to the pulpit and he says, let us pray. And the place erupted in prayer. And I'm not talking, dear Jesus, I'm asking, not like, I mean, oh God, and people are just yelling and screaming and passionately going out to, to God, like 12,000 people at seven o'clock in the morning, passionately pleading with God. And I thought, how is Dr. Cho ever going to get this under control? Like it's just chaos and just people yelling and screaming and passionately crying out to God. And I watched him and he, he stepped back from the pulpit like this and the people were passionate, passionately praying. And I kept watching because I didn't care. I, had, I couldn't understand what was going on other than my little headsets. And he started slowly stepping towards the pulpit like this. And he's praying. He comes closer and closer. Now he's getting, here's the microphone on the pulpit. And as he's getting closer, his voice is now starting to come over the PA system until he's now up close to the PA, up to the microphone, and now the congregation can hear him pray, praying, and their prayers come down, and he brings that thing to a conclusion. There are multiple prayer mountains in Korea. I thought there was one where people would go up on these mountains to pray. There's all kinds of prayer mountains there where people go there, and there's all these little tiny huts, and I mean tiny huts, with just like a little chair where people go there for like days and would just plead with God for their nation and pray for the concerns of what's going on in the world. The largest Methodist church, which we're part of the Methodist church in the world, is also found in Korea. They've only got 60,000 that go to that church. Only. They're a small church in Seoul. Paul chose churches, you know, four or 500,000 that go there. They've only got 60,000 which makes anything in North America that we do pale by comparison. Around the church, there are eight churches with actual weekly attendance, not just a membership of 51,000, and outside of the United States and Canada, there's 45 churches with actual weekly attendance of 10,000 or more. So I believe, I believe God can work in Canada. I believe he can work in Moncton. I believe he can work in New Brunswick. I don't believe that something that's going on around the world is necessarily just unique to them. I believe God loves Canadians as much as he loves other people. So what God is doing elsewhere, I believe he can do here. So what's been our response? Our response to this thing is, well, we're not seeing many people come to faith in Christ. Therefore, maybe we better get better at sharing our faith. So what has happened is, North Americans have bought into a form of evangelism called lifestyle or friendship evangelism. And by that I mean this. 
that if you live a morally upright life, you're a nice person, you don't kick the cat, you give your next door neighbor, you help him cut his lawn, and you, you take in some Tim Hortons coffee to your coworkers, if you're a nice, decent human being with a fairly decent marriage, that somehow by being living Christianly, that that's gonna open up an opportunity for you to share the faith and for the other person to ask you maybe a question about your Christian faith. Almost all Christians in North America only practice lifestyle and friendship evangelism. If I live Christianly, nice person, somehow it's gonna provide me an opportunity to share my faith or the person's gonna ask me about my faith. The problem is, is it's not winning many people to Christ. Those who believe in lifestyle and friendship evangelism endlessly point to that stat right there. And it makes me so ripping mad. So they'll go, well, living Christianly, being a nice person, why, why look at Fred over there. He started coming to his, our church because Sam, the next door neighbor, was nice to him and invited him to church. And, and he became a Christian. And I say, yeah, what's your point? You're pointing to your one little success and ignoring the fact that hundreds of thousands of people across our cities, it has no impact on them. So you're saying, yes, living Christianly resulted in this person coming to faith in Christ, ignoring the fact that trying to approach evangelism this way is failing to win the hundreds of thousands of people around us. So, 1% share their faith, 5% lead anybody to the Lord in an entire lifetime. Why? Because we bought into this notion that if I just live a nice Christian life, somehow it's gonna open up an opportunity for me to share the faith. And it's not true. The statistics from 1960, when we started promoting lifestyle evangelism, until today, overwhelmingly say it is not effective. It may work with a few, but not with very many. George Hunter, Ron Johnson, some of their research, 1% of Christians will share their faith this year. The 2001 edition of Operation World, which is a, a, a book about evangelism around the world, says uh, approximately 2% of North American Christians regularly share their faith. The most recent edition of Operation World, the 2010 edition, states that evangelism in North America is an alien activity, meaning it's just not even happening. And so the evidence for whether or not our present methodologies is effective in bringing people to faith in Christ, it's just not. And the evidence is overwhelming. So when I attended Bethany Bible College back in the day, uh, back in the 70s, I was taught that lifestyle and friendship evangelism is the biblical model. That if you wanna see people come to faith, just live a nice Christian life, watch for an opportunity to invite the person to church, or they're gonna ask you a question, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you, and somehow that's gonna open up this opportunity for you to share the faith. I was taught lifestyle and friendship evangelism was the biblical model. And I'm here to tell you that is patently not true. And if you want to test out what I'm saying, I, I would throw it a challenge to you and say, I dare you to find a book on the market on evangelism that does not promote lifestyle or friendship evangelism. Almost every book, every video, almost every conference and seminar that's out there is promoting some version of live Christianly. It will provide you the opportunity and see that person come to faith in Christ. Lifestyle and friendship evangelism is built on four 
very faulty and wrong assumptions. The first faulty assumption is that the Christian is internally motivated to share their faith. I'm going to live Christianly, and if an opportunity comes up, I'm just going to grab that opportunity and share my faith with that person. That is not true. Christians are not internally motivated to share their faith. Second premise, that the lifestyle of a Christian is obviously different and therefore winsome to a non-Christian. Is the way Christians live their life obviously different than the average non-Christian? And the research by Barna and everybody that I have read on this says, says it's not true. How we live our life is not marketably different than the way the non-Christian lives their life other than the fact that we go to church. Not too long ago, I filled out my income tax forms for this year, and I'm at the accountant's office, and she said to me, she says, uh, Dr. Elliott, uh, you're uh, declaring your income from your speaking engagements. And I said, yeah. She says, uh, you do realize that most people don't do that kind of stuff. And I said, am I supposed to? Legally, am I supposed to declare my income from going out and speaking? She says, yes. She says, almost no Christian does that kind of stuff, even the Christian pastors. This is an accountant that's picking up on this. It assumes that a Christian even has non-Christian friends. And all the research shows the longer you're a Christian, the fewer non-Christian friends that you have. One of the guys that I respect the most, actually he died not too long ago, his name is Jimmy Johnson. Um, Jimmy Johnson says every Christian ought to have a cruddy buddy. You ought to make friends with somebody that's as far away from God as you can find. But most Christians don't have non-Christian friends. And last of all, it believes that evangelism is best accomplished relationally one-on-one. -on -one. And if I polled us in this room and said, do you believe that the best way to advance the gospel is for one Christian to share their faith with another person and see them come to faith in Christ? Most Christians in North America would say yes. Biblically and historically, that is not true. Most people historically and biblically came to faith in Christ in family units or even in entire towns at a time, not one-on-one. -on -one. Can it advance one-on-one? -on -one? Of course it can. That's a good way to do it, but that's not the way Christian faith is advanced historically or biblically, generally speaking. So we're promoting this thing which we know is not working, and we keep hitting this thing. Just be nice. It's going to open up opportunities. You'll grab the opportunity to invite them to church or something like that. It is not working. So Barna's research there is just backing up what I just said. He said 85% of those who do not attend church see little to no difference in attitudes and behaviors between a Christian and a non-Christian. Tim Keller uh, from New York City with the Presbyterian Church, he said individual morality and personal evangelism will not be a sufficient witness in a secondary mission field. So let me ask this question for a moment. If your next door neighbor was a Scientologist and they were a really nice person, as a matter of fact, they came over and cut your lawn every once in a while, and when you were sick, they brought you over a casserole. Or your next door, the person that works at the desk right beside you at work, they're uh, from the Baha'i faith or something of that nature. And every day when they come in, they bring you Tim Hortons coffee and put it on your desk. 
Are you going to become a Scientologist? Are you going to become a member of the Baha'i faith? And if them living consistent with their Scientology beliefs or them living by their Baha'i beliefs, if it's not persuasive to you for you to become what they are, why do we think living Christianly is going to be persuasive to somebody that's not a Christian? Okay, I'm going to take a five-minute break right now. Let's go out and grab a cup of coffee or a cookie or whatever it is that we got out there, and let's come back in, and I want to get right into the... I've finished with the bad news. Woohoo! Now let's get to the good news, all right? So go grab something, come right back in. Like, we're talking like five minutes. Let's make this as quick as possible. Let's find our seats, shall we? And uh, let's get to the good stuff now. No more of the bad stuff. Some of you have heard this before. What do you call a herd of rabbits walking backwards up a hill? A herd of rabbits walking backward up a hill? A receding hairline? Sorry, I'm just filling time, waiting for folks to get back in here. Um, I will say, by the way, that these PowerPoints, um, I'm going to give all these PowerPoints to Pastor Nathan. So I should have told you that ahead of time. I looked down and I saw people <laughs> writing as fast as they could, but he will have all these and you're more than welcome to have them. So I'm gonna slow up now and I'm gonna talk about the really important stuff, which is this. In 1983, when we launched the church in Ottawa, uh, we grew very, very slowly up until 1997. Uh, we literally started with two people. It was my wife and I, we knew two other people that were living in the community and they were going to another church. So literally, it was Helen and I, and I don't think my wife always wanted to be in church. So nobody's had a smaller church uh, than I've had. Um, by 1997, we're running about 120 people in church and people are clapping me on the back and saying, woohoo, Wesleyan Church planted uh, 14 years later, you're running about 120, that seems like such a success. And I was dying on the inside. Uh, when we went to the city of Canada, uh, Canada in 1983 was around 18,000 people. Uh, in 1997, it was around 65,000 people. Um, we, we were not penetrating our community at all. Um, almost all the 120 people that were at our church uh, were transfers from other churches. There was very, very, very few people coming to faith in Christ uh, that had been far from God. And so in 1997, um, actually 1996, I shut down all of our evangelism efforts. Um, I was doing everything that I knew to do to see um, our church move forward. We did uh, literature distribution, we did concerts, uh, we did crusades, we had in guest evangelists, uh, we did, um, I don't think you could think of a form of evangelism that we were not using. We trained our people how to share their faith. I was doing door-to-door -door evangelism, doing everything that I knew to do to try and penetrate our culture with the gospel, and it just wasn't happening. And so in 1996, I shut it all down, and I said, we're not gonna do any more evangelism until I get this thing figured out. What we're doing has no resemblance whatsoever to the book of Acts, uh, where people were coming to faith in Christ hand over fist, and we just weren't seeing it. So 
I don't know how the Lord gave me enough wisdom with this, but he did. So I decided to do a Bible study. Duh. And what I did was I looked at every conversion story in the New Testament. Every place in the Bible where it said, and they put their faith in him, or they became a follower of Christ, or they believed in him, something like that. And what I was doing is I was looking to see what were the factors that contributed to people coming to faith in Christ. And so the first thing, which I could have told you even before I began um, the study, that's, and if you can't read my writing, neither can my students, uh, but it's all foundational on the love and mercy of God. That there's no doubt about it that if it wasn't for God's love and mercy, nobody would ever become a Christian. So I, I could have told you that. Um, there's three things here. Um, I, I saw that the church was praying. Um, the Apostle Paul says, pray for me. Pray that God would open doors of opportunity. Um, and so the church was praying um, for people to come to faith in Christ. Um, the Holy Spirit was working. That was obvious. The Holy Spirit was giving gifts of evangelism. Jesus said, nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him. Um, that was true. Um, and then believers uh, were usable and available. Meaning, here am I, send me. That kind of stuff. Well, before I began my study, I could have told you all of that was going to be as part of what I would discover. The first thing I discovered that caught me off guard was this. Um, I discovered that 50% of the conversion stories had an identifiable miracle or sign or wonder that had just taken place. The easiest example of this is the raising of Lazarus. So you know the story. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Jesus strolls onto the scene. Uh, he says, roll away the stone. They say, Lord, he stinketh. You know, let's not do that. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes toddling out with all the grave clothes around him. He says, set him free. And do you know what the very last verse of that story says? The very last verse says, and many put their faith in him. Surprise, surprise. If I saw a dead guy come back to life, I'd put my faith in Jesus too, right? So 50% of the conversion stories had an identifiable miracle that had just taken place. The second thing here on the top level was that somebody shared a clear testimony or gospel presentation. 50% of the time, it was intentional, meaning it's the Apostle Paul going out to share his faith on a missionary journey, or 50% of the time, it's totally spontaneous. It's Jesus sitting down at the well. He's thirsty. This lady comes along. Can I have a drink of water? Oh, you're a Jew. Why are you asking me a Samaritan woman? To, well, if you knew who I was really asking you, you'd ask me for water that, never, that will never cease. It was a totally spontaneous conversation. And so this one caught me off guard. I knew that at some point, somebody had to make a gospel presentation of the thing. This surprised me. This one here shocked me. This is, and if I could make it any smaller, I would. That says lifestyle evangelism. That accounts for 1% of the conversion stories in the New Testament. Now, to be fair, there are some places in the Bible where people came to faith in Jesus because of how the person was living. The easiest example in the Bible to see that is in 1 Peter, where it says that if, an, if a saved wife has an unsaved husband, he can be won over without talk by the behavior and attitudes of the wife. And so clearly, yes, some people come to faith in Christ 
because of the lifestyle of how this person is living their life. But it only accounts for 1% or less. Now, for those of you that have been following what I've been saying, where have you heard the number 1% before in this presentation? So, 1% of Christians share their faith per year, and less than 1% of churches are growing. We are getting exactly what the Bible predicts. The 99% of the conversion stories factor in these five things right here, that the church is praying, that the Holy Spirit is working, that believers are usable by God and available by God, God is working miraculously in their midst, and somebody is able to articulate a clear presentation of the gospel message. So in 1996, when I discovered this kind of stuff, I said, instead of doing all this other forms of evangelism, sports evangelism, crusade evangelism, film evangelism, and all that, why don't we try doing it the biblical way? Why don't we just focus on these five things? Why does a church, why don't we just start praying that people will get saved? Let's seek the presence of God's Holy Spirit seriously. Let's make sure that we're the type of people that God wants to work with. Let's actively seek God's miraculous presence in our midst and make sure that we're able to clearly articulate the essence of the gospel. Let's focus on these five things to see if it will give us the 99% of conversion growth as opposed to doing everything we can to get the 1%. That was 1996 coming into 1907, 1997. Now, by the miraculous activities of God's Holy Spirit, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about asking God to physically bring healing from disease and injury. Did we see some of that? Yes, we did. We didn't see a lot, but we saw some. Perhaps the most notable story, my wife's here and she can verify this if you wish, but one of my wife's very best friends in the world is a lady named Mary Ann. Mary Ann's mother and sister had both had their breasts removed because of tumors and cancer in their breasts. Marianne had very, very aggressive breast cancer. Her breasts were filled with tumors. Her breasts were red with the, with the, with the heat that was being generated by this thing. She was to have her breasts removed. She was having a, a time with Helen at the house. And as they were talking and praying, and Helen was mentoring her, Marianne got up and went into the washroom. And Helen started praying for her while she was in the washroom. And when Marianne came out of the washroom, Helen said to her, she said, did God say anything to you in the washroom? And Marianne says, well, I felt like God said, my peace is with you or something like that. Okay. And Marianne says, did God say something different to you? And Helen says, well, I felt like God said you're healed. And Marianne said, that's what I heard too. I just didn't want to say it. And at the exact same moment, her husband, Bruce, that worked on the far side of Ottawa, heard the exact same thing. She went back to her doctor. She was scheduled to have her breasts removed. She went back to her doctor and said, would you please do one more set of ultrasounds on my breast? The doctor says, there's no sense. We know they're filled with tumors. She said, humor me, please just do one more set of ultrasounds. No tumors, all gone. Now, 
Did we see a lot of that? No, but we saw some of that. A friend of mine, Pastor Ian, he's up in North in, in Arm Prayer right now. This just happened just like, like recently. Um, he was preaching one Sunday morning, and as he was preaching, this is a very dear friend. I know him very, very well. Uh, he was preaching, and he, all of a sudden he had this sense from the Lord that God said, tell the story about the woman with the, with the issue of bleeding. It, had, it was not in his notes. He was, it had nothing to do with his sermon. But he heard from God. He decided to heed what I've said this morning. And so he said, I just inserted that story right into my sermon. He says, by the way, there's a story in the Bible about this woman who had a problem with bleeding down below. And, uh, she, and the woman said, if I could just touch the edge of his garment, I'll be healed. She came up and touched, and she was healed. Totally unbeknownst to Ian, there was a visitor in the service that day, a lady who had a problem with bleeding. And she heard what Ian said, and she said, God, if you can do that for that lady in the Bible, would you do it for me too? She went home, work with me here, she went home and checked, no bleeding. Had been bleeding for years. None that week. She came back to church the following Sunday, walked up to Ian, said, last week when you told that story about the woman that God healed from her bleeding issue, she said, I was in the service. You didn't know I was here. I prayed and asked God to do that for me. He's healed me. How do I become a Christian? Actively seeking God's miraculous activity in our midst. Exorcisms, the casting out of demons, raising the dead, signs in the sky, angel visits, rainbows events, wonders like burning bush fire on the mountain, miracles of water turning into wine, multiplying the fish, walking in water, prophecy. Prophecy, by the way, is predictive of the future. Prophecy is not just boldly proclaiming the word of God. Every prophecy that, where the words are contained in the Bible always, 100% of the time, contains something about the future. Words of knowledge are different. Words of knowledge are something that is presently true. Prophecy is future true. So I am not doing this right now. This is me pretending, all right? Cut me some slack here. So if I said to you, God just gave me a word of knowledge that in your back pocket you've got a $100 bill, that would be a word of knowledge, it's something I should not be able to know that is presently true. Prophecy would be, by the end of this week, somebody's gonna give you $100. That's future. We had a pile of that kind of stuff where God began working prophetically amongst people in our midst and words of knowledge, things that they should not be able to know are true that were true. Speaking in tongues, and I'm, by the way, I'm fourth generation Wesleyan. My son is a Wesleyan pastor. My grandkids are going to a Wesleyan church uh, right now. I'm fully Wesleyan. Did we have speaking in tongues? We had a little bit. Unusual timely answers to prayer and provisions and protections. Things like when we moved into our house uh, in Canada uh, during this time period, um, we had spent, like, we went actually over our budget to buy this house. And Helen said to me one day after we'd moved in, she said, boy, wouldn't it be nice, because we got three kids. She said, wouldn't it be nice if we had a sandbox for our kids? And I said, honey, we got, like, no money. We can't buy a sandbox. And Helen says, why don't we pray about it? So we didn't tell a soul that we were praying, asking God for a sandbox. 
I think that was a Tuesday, if I remember right, when that conversation happened. That Saturday, we're new in the community. I'm in my backyard. I'm meeting a neighbor over the fence. Never met this guy before. We're talking away, and he says to me, he says, I see you got some kids there. And I said, yeah. He says, would you like to have a sandbox? And I said, as a matter of fact, I would. He says, come on around. He says, I got a sandbox. We don't need any more. Come get it. So I got the sandbox, brought it around, put it in our backyard, went in the house, and I said to Helen, I said, guess what? God gave us a sandbox. Come out and look. She looked at it. She says, there's no sand in it. <laughs> and I said, we didn't ask God for sand. We asked God for a sandbox. Maybe we should have been a little bit more specific. So she says, let's pray and ask God for sand. The next Saturday, I'm in my front yard. Remember, we're brand new in this community. I don't know the people here. My next door neighbor across the street comes across the street to me, and he says to me, he says, uh, oh, your new neighbor, he says, you notice the stuff we're doing at our house? And I said, yeah, I see some activity going on. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm putting a swimming pool in my backyard. He says, um, I ordered too much of that really nice white sand that you put underneath the liners of your, of your pool. He said, I got a bunch of white sand. He says, do you have any need for white sand? And I said, I do, as a matter of fact. He says, do you have a wheelbarrow? And I said, no, I'm a preacher. I don't do that kind of stuff. I said, he said, well, let's go find a wheelbarrow. So we went and found a wheelbarrow from somebody and we got like three or four wheelbarrowfuls and filled up our sandbox. I am 65, I turned 65 this week, this is true. In 65 years of living, Nobody has offered me a sandbox or sand except the week we prayed for it. When this stuff keeps happening over and over again, we, we were as poor as church mice when we planted the church and um, the muffler went on my car. And so I went over to Midas Muffler and I said to the Midas Muffler people, I said, how much to replace the muffler on my car? He said, $318. Well, he might as well have said $38,000. I mean, we had nothing close to $318 to replace. So what do we do? We said, we're going to pray about it. Let's just pray and ask God to provide. That Sunday at church, somebody gave me a $100 bill. Sunday night, I'm in bed. The lights are off. My doorbell rings. It's one of the parishioners in our church. He says, I was in bed trying to fall asleep, and God told me I had to get up and bring you $100. Here's $100. Monday in the mail, $100 came. Tuesday, Helen's sister sent us a, 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 a $20 bill. We got $320 for a $318 bill, and the money stopped. I figured the extra $2 was to cover the gas to go to Midas and Muffler and back. <laughs> like when this stuff keeps happening over and over and over again, any fair-minded person has got to go, there is something else going on here. So unusually timely answers to prayer and provisions and protections and the palatable presence that God is near. I'm sure all of us at some point, you've been in a church service where you just know the presence of God is there. As a matter of fact, you don't want to even move for fear that you might break what's going on. Well, I'm telling you, that was one of the primary ways that God manifested himself in our church in Canada after 1997. We got worse at advertising. And the two most common sentences that people said to me in my 22 years in Ottawa, the first one was, what's a Westland? Because nobody has ever heard of a Westland. The second most common sentence that people said to me was this. I don't know why I'm here today. I was driving by on the highway, and I just felt like I had to come to church today. 
It wasn't in response to advertising. It was the drawing influence of God's Holy Spirit. Our mayor came to visit us on one of our anniversaries. I don't remember which one it was. It's a, it's a lady mayor, and she, she was in the service, and she's not a Christian. And she, I remember she came up to the pulpit to bring greetings on whatever anniversary it was, and like, if you'll allow me to mimic her a little bit, this is what she did. She got up to the pulpit, she hangs on, she goes, there's a, there's a, there's an energy here. She didn't even have the vocabulary to say it was the presence of God's Holy Spirit. You read the great revivals of the past. Even before the church services would begin, people would walk through the doors and begin weeping. No music playing, nobody had preached yet. The farmers would be out in the fields, they would be plowing, and the presence of God's Holy Spirit was hovering over that area, and the farmers would get off of their, their horses and their wagons and would start weeping. The palatable presence of God is in this place. So when I'm talking about miracle signs and wonders, I'm talking about, yes, we had healings, yes, prophecies, yes, we had some words of knowledge, we had some miraculous answers to prayer and all kinds of stuff. You ask me, well, what was the main manifest presence of God? I would just say, God is near. It was like, And if you'll allow me, I don't normally share this, but if you'll cut me a little bit of slack here. Prior to 1997, if you had asked the average person in our church, why do you go to Canada Wesleyan Church? People told me, they would say, the main reason we come is we like your preaching. After 1997, people would say things like this. Steve never gets up to preach, it's okay. We've met with God. What happened in the New Testament with the miraculous? You cannot read the New Testament without knowing that the miracles drew a crowd. Why did they go to see Jesus? Yes, of course, he was the son of God. Yes, of course, amazing teaching. But the primary reason why they went is because they wanted to see what Jesus was doing. It credentials the speaker Again, I don't operate in gifts of healing, but if there was somebody that was blind here and you all know the person and they come up on this platform and God does a miracle and allows them to see, you would give credence to the person that's speaking. It breaks apathy and indifference. It is very hard to be indifferent in the face of a miracle. And it causes a healthy fear and reverence amongst people for the name of God and for the name of Christ. It opens the minds of the unsaved to consider the claims of the Christian message. The Christian message. Encourages church to be bold. In Acts chapter four, where the church is being persecuted, Lord, stretch forth your hand to heal, perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And the place was shaken. The very next set verse says, and they went out and spoke the word boldly on behalf of the gospel. It usually results in instantaneous faith and repentance, and it confirms the existence of God to skeptics. You wouldn't know this unless I tell you this, but one of my, my little hobbies that I do behind the scenes is I like to read atheist websites. Because I like to know how the other side thinks. And I'll tell you, 
the most frequent sentence I see on atheist websites is this. If there was objective evidence for the existence of God, I would believe in him. And when God is doing things that astonish and amaze and are clearly miraculous, and it's not sleight of hands and it's not trickery and it's not manipulation, it is clearly miraculous activity, atheists sit up and take notice. Maybe there is a God. And it convicts people of their own sinfulness and their own weaknesses. The evidence biblically is overwhelming on this stuff. So that is the actual chart of attendance for our church in Canada. You can see when we started in 1983, you can see how we were very level going up to 1997. You say, everybody that looks at that chart says, what happened in 1997? Well, there was eight things that happened in 1997. We got serious about men's ministry, which I've already talked about. We got serious about people serving according to spiritual gifts. We started actually adding in mid-sized groups, which most churches don't have any clue how important mid-sized groups are. We got serious about worship. It had nothing to do with the quality of our music. We had Nashville studio musicians on our worship team. We were very good musically. We were terrible worshipers. And we said in 1997, whatever it takes to get good at worship, that's what we're going to do. Vision ownership, we've got a new facility, leadership development, infrastructure type stuff. And if you said, Steve, if you had to choose one of those things, what was the most important one? It's the one up there that says an emphasis on the personal work of the Holy Spirit. That's what happened in 1997. You say, was it without controversy? (laughs) Are you kidding me? I've been around the church long enough to know. So as soon as we started saying, we're going to get serious about the pursuit of God's Holy Spirit, we're going to get serious about worship and all the rest of that, we lost seven families from our church. We were only 120-ish people at that time, roughly. You think we took a hit? But look what happened to the attendance. And by the way, almost all of the growth from 1997 on is all conversion growth. It's not transfer of Christians between the churches. Most of that growth is people that were far from God coming to faith in God. Can you back this up biblically, Steve? Jesus did many other miraculous signs which are not recorded in this book. But these, what? The miraculous signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Why did Jesus do miracles? Because he knew that it would have a persuasive influence on people. My message came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. In this way, in what way? In this miraculous activity, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wondrous miraculous signs were done by the apostles and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders amongst the people. So Edward Gibbons is a secular historian from Harvard University, and he wrote a book on, called the, the Rise and Decline of the Roman Empire. Some, his, you, some of you might even recognize that book. He devotes a chapter in that book to the rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. Now remember, the Roman Empire was viciously against Christianity. To become a Christian in the first century or so meant 
First of all, you lose your property, you lose your job, you cannot go to school, you're no longer considered a citizen, you're probably going to be in prison, your kids and grandkids are going to be taken away from you, and you might even be thrown to the lions or you might be impaled on a stake and burned at a, at, at, for, the, for the Caesar. So to become a Christian in this environment is highly unlikely. Who in their right mind is going to become a Christian? When to do so means that you're going to lose your family, your property, and your jobs and everything like that. And yet the Christian faith exploded in growth from 120 in the upper room to about 5 million people within a century or so. How did that happen when they were viciously being persecuted? And Edward Gibbons' conclusion to this thing is this. He said, the reason that Christianity exploded around the Mediterranean is because Christians, both lay and clergy, commonly performed miracles of healing, exorcism, and prophecies that resulted in massive numbers of people becoming followers of Jesus Christ. This is a secular historian saying, why did Christianity grow so rapidly in that first few centuries or so? What about, does somebody have a Bible on them, by the way? Somebody got a Bible? Is that an NIV? It is? That's, that's the version that the Apostle Paul used? Okay, so... Romans 15, would you turn to Romans, see the Romans 15 passage right there? So the truth is this. If lifestyle and friendship evangelism is so important, then how do we count for the fact that the Apostle Paul goes into Ephesus and other places and the people have no clue in the world whether his lifestyle backs up what he's about to say? And yet tons of people come to faith in Christ. They didn't know if his lifestyle backed him up, backed up his message. So the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 15, the reason why he was so successful evangelistically, would you mind standing up? Would you read that as loud as you can, please? My, uh, Shane, are you up there? Can I use this mic? Okay. Would you read that passage? Yeah, 15, 17 to 19. Okay. Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus. In my service to God, I will not venture to, speaking, to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. Another one? Keep going. Uh, by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the, whole, of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around. Iconium. Iconium. <laughs> I have fully, fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Isn't that interesting? So here's the Apostle Paul. Thank you very much. Um, here's the Apostle Paul saying why he was so successful. Yes, because of his message. But he says it's because of the power of signs and wonders that was enabling the gospel to be heard. It got an audience and people were willing to accept it. So we have not factored in the why people invited other people to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I'm a pastor, and I was a pastor for about 24 years, 22 years in Canada, a few years down the States, and I know pastoral work. I teach pastoral work. Here's what pastors do. Pastors try and guilt their people into inviting people to come to church. That's what they do. Things like this. Now, we're having an Easter musical. We're having a Christmas musical. You know, it's our responsibility to invite your family. We'll give you the cards. Now, you, you invite somebody to come out to, to the program, okay? That's your responsibility. 
Am I being, is that what we do? Okay. Is that what was happening in the New Testament? Was somebody trying to guilt people into introducing other people to Jesus Christ? And the answer is no. As a matter of fact, you couldn't stop the people from inviting other people to get to know Jesus. Come, see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Why did the four men bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus? You tell me. Why did they dig the hole through the roof? You're talking about people that are on a mission to get their friend to Jesus. Why did they do that? Because they believed that Jesus could heal the guy. That's why they were bringing it. Jesus heals two blind men. As a direct result, they went out and spread the news about him over the entire region. Even when Jesus said, don't tell anybody, what did they do? Blah, 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 blah. You couldn't stop the people. Jesus raised the young boy back to life. This news about Jesus spread through Judea and the, and the country. When they heard all Jesus was doing, many people came to him from Judea and Jerusalem, from the regions across the Jordan, for, they, for he had healed many. This is the why people were inviting other people to come meet Jesus. Because they were convinced, this guy can do miracles. This guy's got amazing teaching ministry. This is the son of God. They were internally motivated, which we are not. The Bible is clear. Jesus' miraculous ministries were significant reasons why huge crowds came to see and hear him. Yet today, when the churches either fearfully minimize or actively discourage the supernatural manifestations of God, the personal work of the Holy Spirit, we strangely expect those in our congregations to be excited about inviting their family and friends to church to meet Jesus. This lack of emphasis on the miraculous is like tying one of our hands behind our back. By doing so, the church is robbed of its natural ally in evangelism. Somehow we concluded that bland, dispassionate Christians who are friendly and godly will somehow magically and enthusiastically invite their unsaved friends and neighbors and co-workers into a relationship with Christ. We are robbing ourselves out of fear of the Holy Spirit, of the natural ally in evangelism. So what did Jesus say? He said, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles. He anticipated that the miraculous activity he was involved in would have a persuasive influence. Even though you don't believe in me, believe the miracles that you may learn and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Men of Israel, this Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God by miracles, wonders, and signs. The salvation was first announced to the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified by signs, wonders, and miracles. Uh, leading the Gentiles to obey God by the power of signs and miracles through the power of his spirit. The, the evidence is just overwhelming biblically that what I'm saying is true. Even George Barna, in talking about why the first century Christian church grew so much, he said this. He said, the evangelic efforts of the first believers were carried out through preaching, conversations of prayer, performing miracles to foster the opportunity to discuss the source of their power. Believers exhibited a remarkable attitude towards life and people and acknowledged the presence of the supernatural in their everyday adventures. So it was um, uh, Gordon Fee and Stephen uh, Siemens uh, who were the first that I had heard use this phrase. And it's, it's one of those moments when you hear something, you go, duh, why didn't I think of that? He said, evangelical churches are Trinitarian in our belief but we're binitarian in our practice. He says, we talk a lot about God the Father and Jesus 
and almost never talk about the Holy Spirit. I've been out of pastoral ministries now since 2007. I teach at Kingswood. I teach next generation of preachers and youth pastors, worship pastors, all those kind of people. I travel all the time. As national superintendent, I'm out speaking all the time. And I'm telling you, I sit in church service after church service, and with my hands, I start counting how many times I hear God the Father or Jesus mentioned. And with my other hand, I keep track of how many times I hear any reference to the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, these guys are absolutely right. We're Trinitarian in our doctrine, but we're binitarian in our practice. We provide almost no room, airtime, for the Holy Spirit in our midst. We depend nominally on the Spirit, but we primarily depend on ourselves, our training, our skills, our personalities, our past experience, our knowledge, our sincere efforts. As a result, what we accomplish is limited to what we can do. <sighs> How much time do I have? Okay. Um, anybody want to guess what the secular Greek word is for a Christian? Not the biblical word. Anybody want to guess what the secular word is for a Christian? First century? Say again? Okay. So here's what it is. The Greek word for a Christian in the first century is that's how common it was. You're a Christian? You must have seen a miracle. Does the Holy Spirit and the work of the miraculous have any bearing on whether people actually grow as a Christian? Or is it only good for conversion? Nobody has ever asked me that question until about two weeks ago. It's interesting, it was actually part of my doctoral work. I was analyzing, are you familiar with Alpha Courses? People know what Alpha Course is? If, if you haven't attended an Alpha Course, I would really encourage you to attend it. But I was looking at Alpha Courses, and I arbitrarily said there were five different types of Alpha Courses. Alpha 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. An Alpha 5 course, everybody gets healed, everybody gets a miracle. I mean, that's like they're just expecting everything miraculous to happen. An Alpha 1 course, if anything miraculous happens, it's of the devil. Like, we just... They're just not into anything like that, all right? And what I was looking to see, is there any difference in the evangelistic results of Alpha courses that strongly emphasize the Holy Spirit or the Alpha courses that really minimize the work of the Holy Spirit? What I discovered is the, more, the person who had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, and there was really unusual stories that people told me because I interviewed dozens and dozens, of like, like 15, 20 different types of Alpha courses, and I was talking to these people about what they had experienced. Those that had an encounter with the Holy Spirit were way more likely to become a Christian than a person that sat right beside them heard the exact same video, at the same meals, interacted with the same people, this person that had no encounter of the Holy Spirit, far less likely to become a Christian than this person who heard the same thing but had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. But not only that, here's the, the other part of my research. Those that had an encounter with the Holy Spirit were growing at almost four times the rate of maturing as a Christian 
as the person that became a Christian but had not had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? It's like putting a person on high-test gasoline. This person that had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, way growing faster. Not only were they growing faster, but their confidence in their relationship with God. Are you a Christian? You know, absolutely I know I'm a Christian. You're a Christian? Yeah, I think I'm a Christian. How about this? Their confidence in the existence of God. Do you know that God exists? Absolutely I know that God. Look what he did for me. You became a Christian just by a rational decision for the Lord? Does God exist? Yeah, I'm pretty sure God exists. And a greater esteem for the importance of the Bible and a greater love for the church. The way they physically treat a Bible, the way they read the Bible, way more engaged with God's word if they'd had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. I don't normally tell this story. Matter of fact, I, I can't remember the last time I told this story. You say, Steve, does this have any bearing on you as a person? When I was about 14 years of age, God did an out and out miracle in my life. I was water skiing. Uh, the boat ran out of gas. Uh, the boat drifted away from me. I had no life belt. I didn't have my skis. There's a story behind that. And I was left in the water for an hour and a half by myself in the middle of the lake. I took a cramp on my right side. My right leg stopped working. My right arm stopped working. I was thrashing with my left arm and left leg trying to keep my head above water. And I knew I was going to drown. And people that say, when you know you're going to die, your life flashes before you, I'm telling you, that's exactly what happened to me. I knew I was going to die. I thought about my mom, my dad, my sister. I thought about my girlfriend at the time, which was not Helen. God, God saved Helen for later. But my, and I knew I was going to, and I remember, I prayed. And I said, God, if you've got a plan for my life, other than for me to drown in this lake, I need your help right now. And I can only describe to you what happened. It was like God put his hands underneath my feet and I stood in the water, not on top of the water. I stood in the water for an hour and a half waiting for somebody to come rescue me. God has got a wonderful sense of humor. There was only one person on the lake that I didn't like. And he finally figured out that there was a problem. He came out and he came to where I was. He said, do you need a hand? And I said, yeah, I couldn't get in the boat. I was too weak. He pulled me in. I laid on the bottom of the boat. They took me back to our dock. He said, are you okay? And I said, I think so. And I stepped out on the dock and I passed out. And I don't remember anything after that. I don't care what happens to me as a Christian. I can never deny what happened back there. Does God exist? You bet God exists. Does God miraculously intervene in people's lives? Yes, he does. Does he always do it the way we think? No. Does he always show up when we think he should? No. Will everybody be healed in this life? No. But we serve a miracle working God. And an interesting thing that also came out of that thing was when I did my interviews with the people that had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, I said, tell me, what's been happening since you became a Christian? And they began telling stories 
of how God began putting his finger on areas of their life that needed to change. I never realized how much of a bigot I was. And God's been putting his finger on my life. And I never realized how angry and unforgiving a person I was until God began putting his finger on my life. I was hearing that from people that had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. I was not hearing that from the people that did not have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. What separates a church from every other organization in the world? Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments. God inscribes it with his finger. Ten Commandments. Comes down the hill. There's Aaron and the boys, and they've made a calf made out of gold. God is angry, and Moses is angry, and he takes that thing, and he grinds the thing up, and, and God is really angry at the Jewish people, and God says to Moses, he says, I'm going to send my angel with you towards the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you now. And Moses has a coronary on the spot. And he stands before God, and if somebody wants to look up that verse in Exodus 33, this is what he says. If you don't go with us, God, what else would distinguish us from all the other peoples of the earth? And I'm telling you, the singular distinguishing feature of the Christian church is God in their midst. The Kiwanis Club, the Shriners, and everybody else, they've got buildings, they've got programs, they've got budgets, they've got leaders, they've got elections, they've got annual meetings, they've got everything that church has. But the distinguishing feature of the church is God in their midst. My big conclusion is this. The primary reason why people go to church is in the hopes of encountering, experiencing the God of the universe. And when week after week, month after month, it does not happen, they grow discouraged and disappointed and disillusioned, and they begin to drop out. And there's almost no likelihood these church attenders will enthusiastically invite their family and friends to attend church. Our powerless churches are leaving people feeling cold, unsatisfied, and indifferent. So my contention is this. When God shows up, you can't beat people away from the doors. You don't need a lot of fancy programs like that, although I believe in all that. I'm not against any of it. I would encourage churches to do that kind of stuff. But when we start substituting balloons and clowns and dry ice smoke machines and lights and things like that, when we substitute this stuff for the presence of God, we're in serious trouble. You can't stop people from coming to a church when God is working miraculously. So I decided to put it to a test. I'll finish with this. We began growing very, very quickly. Most of the people that were coming were just coming because they heard that God was doing something in our midst. And I thought, I wonder if it's true that when God shows up, like in the time of Jesus, Jesus takes the people way out into the, into the barren parts and they're with him all day and they have nothing to eat for the entire day. Like, why are they doing that? Why are they putting up with that kind of stuff? Because of Jesus was doing miracles and people were being healed in an amazing teaching ministry. So I thought, I wonder if this would be true. So we're in Ottawa, which I believe is the coldest national capital in the world, I think. Minus 20, 
minus 30 Celsius would not be that uncommon in the middle of the winter. And so I said to our congregation one day, I said, I think we're going to do something for fun. Why don't we have church in a barn in the middle of the winter? So I went to see a farmer, and I said, um, would you mind letting us use your barn for church service? So we took bales of hay, and we stacked them up, and there's no cattle. There's nothing in This is just a cold barn. And we said, we're going to have church at this barn. Why don't you come out to our services? By the way, we also learned where the phrase, did you grow up in a barn, came from. <laughs> People would come and leave the barn door open, and the wind would howl in. Shut the door, shut the door. And we'd pack that place out, even though it was freezing cold. Not because the preaching was great, but because the presence of God was so good. My contention, get, uh, Pastor Nathan, are you in here? How much time do I have? You, you give, me, give me an estimate here. Do you want to take a little break and then I'll do like another 10 minutes and finish off? Okay, why don't you take it, because I know some of you had coffee, and coffee's probably gone through you already. So can, can we take a shorter break than we took the last time? Let's, let's take a real short break, and then we'll finish off with like 15 minutes or something like that. Thank you for being so attentive. Really, really appreciate this. And I also want to thank the Lord for something. Um, last week, I was right in bed. I never got out of my pajamas. I was so sick last week, and I was afraid I wouldn't even be able to be here today. But uh, the Lord helped me to be here, so I just want to say thank you to the Lord for his goodness to me. The question can rightfully be asked, then, under what circumstances can a congregation or individuals actively pursue the personal work of the Holy Spirit? And I just made a quick list biblically. Um, the Holy Spirit, of course, he's given as, as, as a spirit, as God himself determines, but definitely corporate times of extended prayer, fasting, and seeking. Um, every revival that's taken place, I think almost without exception, you're able to trace back that some group of people started praying and asking to God to work in their midst, yeah. uh, especially with fasting. We do not fast nearly enough. Um, the Bible doesn't say if you fast, it says when you fast. Um, and so we ought to be fasting, and fasting expresses to God our sincerity. Uh, when God was going to destroy the city of Nineveh, um, you remember that the king of Nineveh declared a fast amongst the people and not even the animals were going to be allowed to eat. And the very next verse says, when God saw how they humbled themselves, he relented and did not bring on them the disaster that he had promised. Uh, there's something about us expressing to God. We deny ourselves something that's good and wholesome, like food, um, for the sake of something that's way better and more, way more important. So people are praying. Um, believe, believe in the empowering presence um, of God is available for you. Uh, this is not something that God is uniquely gifting outside of North America, and it's not just something in biblical times. God wants to do it in Moncton. And he wants, to do it. he wants his Holy Spirit to be part of your life in the congregation. Um, humbly submitting to Jesus' lordship, uh, repentance from any known re rebellion and pride, individually asking for his infilling, declaring your great need, desire for his presence, 
asking other spirit-filled believers to lay hands on you, obedience to his revealed will, and love and unity within the family of God. God is very hesitant to send his Holy Spirit in where there's infighting, grumbling, and complaining. Um, there's a reason why the book of Acts says they were in one accord on the day of Pentecost, and that doesn't mean they were meeting in a Honda, right? <laughs> they were, there, was a, there was a love and unity amongst the people, and we need to be the type of people that if we know we're out of fellowship with somebody, go make that thing right. Um, kill your pride. We had two ladies in our church, and if, if there was ever two ladies that had any reason to be angry with each other, they were these two ladies. Um, I would stand up on Sunday morning, and man was over here with his live-in girlfriend, and his wife sat on this side over here with her live-in boyfriend. And she blamed her for breaking up her marriage. But they both liked the church and they both came. They just sat on opposite sides of the congregation. And one Sunday they met at the back door and they fell on each other's shoulders and started to cry and weep and forgive each other. There's something, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, that's the type of environment in which God wants to work. It's so a love and unity within the family of God. Interesting notation. There's no example in the New Testament of people being filled with the Holy Spirit when they're by themselves. It can happen to the individual, but biblically, it always takes place in a group setting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, we can ask for the infilling of God's Holy Spirit. God may give us his Holy Spirit when we're by. But every example in the New Testament where God's Spirit falls on people, it's always in a group context. Why? Because God so values community and fellowship and body life. And the infilling of the Holy Spirit is not just a once and for all event. In the Bible, individuals were filled and later refilled and again and again with the presence of power of the Holy Spirit. Billy Graham was asked one time if he believed in multiple fillings of the Holy Spirit. And he actually quoted from D.L. Moody. And he said, yeah, he says, I believe in multiple fillings of the Holy Spirit. And the guy said, why? And he says, because we leak. <laughs> I, and I think that's very valid. But I'd like to propose something a little different way of looking at this thing, about the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Is anybody in here like camping? Anybody like camping? Do you know what I mean when I talk about a collapsible cup? Okay, it looks like an accordion, right? Okay, so imagine if my hands, I've got a, a collapsible cup like that, and I take it and I fill it with water. Is it filled? It's not a trick question. Is it filled? Yeah. Now watch. Click. Is it now filled? Is it now filled? Yeah. Watch. Click. Is it now filled? No. Right? And now it is. I'd like to believe that we believe in multiple infillings of the Holy Spirit because our capacity for the Holy Spirit increases. I'd like to think that when I first became a Christian, my capacity for the Holy Spirit now is greater than it was way back then. So, no examples in the Bible of people being filled with the Holy Spirit when they're by themselves. It can be, but and then multiple fillings. And it's not that just friendship evangelism wrong, it's just not enough. The book that some of you picked up, that's not the original title to that book. Um, it was actually the publisher that named the book. 
um, by the, uh, by the uh, signs and wonders, how the Holy Spirit grows the Holy Church. That was actually the publisher that named the book. The title that I had for that book was not enough, not nearly enough. Meaning, how we're doing evangelism, it's just not enough. It's not nearly enough. We need God's Holy Spirit in our midst. So I'm for all these different forms of evangelism. And although God can, does bless most any effort to advance this message, not all approaches to evangelism bear the same fruit. Not all fishing messages reap the same results. See, Peter Wagner said one time, the most effective form of evangelism is church planting. And I, if you happen to, I don't know if anybody got a copy of the book there, if you happen to look on the back cover, see Peter Wagner's endorsement of the book. It's the very first one, I believe, at the top. And I called him, and I said, Dr. Wagner, I said, I, I just highly, highly respect you. But you said that church planting is the most important, effective method of evangelism. I said, I, I don't believe that's right. I believe that church services that are characterized by the presence of God's Holy Spirit are the most effective form of evangelism. And he said, you're absolutely right. So what convinces somebody to believe something? Well, people can be taught to believe or talked into believing something because it's logical. One plus one equals two. People can believe something because they trust the character of the person that's telling them. Well, I don't know if it's true, but I trust that person. If they say it's true, then it must be true. People can be persuaded for something out of goodwill. Well, they helped me move my piano, therefore I guess I'll go help them move their piano. People can be persuaded about stuff because of eloquence. That's why World Vision puts pictures of the little flies going in and out of the children and tugs on our heartstrings. But the most powerful form of evangelism is power. If you took a kid that lived in the Sahara Desert and you said to him, you do know that most of the world is covered with, with water. And the kid goes, no, it's not. Look around. The world's covered in sand. Because that's his it's his experience. And then you take the kid in the helicopter, take him out of the desert, take him out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and drop him in and say, now do you believe that the world is filled with a lot of water? He goes, yeah, I believe now. Right? And that's what power does. When God's beginning to work miraculously in our midst, it so overwhelms people, they go, God exists. I'm going to believe in him. Jesus used all five. The great revivals of the past, almost without exception, were marked by the miraculous. I think I'll probably finish with this. How is it that I'm a fourth-generation Wesleyan, my son's a Wesleyan pastor. My kids are going to a Wesleyan church, so we got six generations of our family. Why did it take me so long to figure out why John Wesley was so effective in ministry? John Wesley was just a rather short gentleman. He was about 5'4", five, 5'6". Five, He's about this big. And thousands of people came to hear him preach. And I know that, you know, historically, everybody knows that he was powerful, powerful influence for the gospel. And I remember as a young person going, really? Was he that great of a preacher that thousands of people would come to hear him with no PA systems back in those days or anything? 
And was Charles Wesley such an amazing musician that was like the hill song of the day? Like people just flocked to hear the Charles Wesley. Really? Was the music so amazing that thousands of people would come to hear these guys? And it wasn't until my doctoral dissertation when I was doing my research that I finally figured out why so many people were going to hear John Wesley preach. Because his services were marked with the miraculous. As a matter of fact, one person writing about John Wesley said that his services were so frequently characterized by the miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit that if John was preaching and he did not see evidence of the move of God's Holy Spirit, he would stop the services, and I'm quoting now, Lord, where are thy tokens and signs to prove thy message? And the writer said, Every time he prayed that, the congregations would fall on their faces. Miraculous activities, people weeping and wailing and laughing, horses being healed, thunderstorms repeatedly, and he would command the thunderstorms to stop, and they would stop. And you go, well, maybe once or twice in his lifetime, but time after time after time, Miraculous deliverances where he's in a building and he senses the Spirit of God say, get out of the building now. He gets up, takes the people out. The house exploded because there was gunpowder in the back room. Over and over and over again, the miraculous activity, he called it preternatural, beyond what is natural. Did he believe that there was false stuff? Oh, yeah. He called it enthusiasms where people would just do things out of their own will and excitement about stuff. Did we see enthusiasms in Canada? Oh, yeah. We saw stuff that was, I had no belief whatsoever that was of the Spirit of God. I remember being up front. I was down about here one time, and I was praying for somebody, and rarely did somebody fall while I was praying for them. And I was just gently laid my hands on them, and they went down like that. And immediately, I thought, that had nothing to do with the Spirit of God. Did we have weird stuff that happened? Oh, yeah. I had a lady came to me one time and said that God told her that there were going to be five nuclear bombs go off in the United States on a particular day. And I hear this stuff, and there's nothing within me that resonates that it's true. So I said, I believe you've absolved yourself of responsibility. You've come to a person of authority and told them what you believe God had to say. So I believe you're absolved of your responsibility in this matter, but you do understand if the date comes and goes and there are no nuclear explosions that you and I need to have a conversation? Because not everybody that thinks to hear from God is hearing from God. First time I learned that lesson was at Bethany Bible College. And one of our professors came and stood in front of our class, I think it was in January, and he said, class, I need to tell you a story. Something happened this fall. He said, this fall, he said, I had five guys in our school came and told me that God had told them who they were supposed to marry. He said, interesting thing was, all five guys named the same girl. <laughs> At Christmas time, the girl went home for Christmas break and unbeknownst to the school, got married at home, but not to one of the five guys. And I remember when he said that, I remember thinking, I've got to remember, it's really easy to mix up my will with the will of God. 
And so did we have some challenges? Yes, we had some challenges. Not everybody that heard from God was hearing from God. And not everything they thought they, thought they should speak, they should have been able to speak. And we didn't start pronouncing healings on people because I, unless you've got a rhema word from God, you shouldn't be pronouncing healing on people. You should lean into the Philippians passage that says, present your requests unto God with thanksgiving. And so we trained our altar workers to pray and ask God for healing rather than pronounce healing on people unless God told them that's what he was going to do. So the great revivals of the past were all marked with miraculous activities, almost without exception. The Azusa Street revivals between 1906 to 1914 were marked by healings and tongues and racial reconciliations, interdominational cooperation, signs and wonders, salvation, and it was the launch of Pentecostalism. The Welsh revivals from 904 to 905 marked by 150,000 conversions. How would you like to see 150,000 people saved in a year? Characterized by visions and deep repentance and spontaneous praise and lives and communities dramatically changed. The Finney revivals in New England from 1824 to 32. Eight years, 500,000 conversions in eight years. The Welsh Wesley revivals in England between 1738 and 1791. The environment is charged by the Holy Spirit. There's an expectation we're going to meet with God. There's a conviction for the wrongness and offensiveness of sin. There's an awareness of our lostness and hopelessness apart from God. There's simultaneously an awareness that there's hope because what an amazing God that we've got. There's remorse and repentance is more easily felt and expressed in the heightened sense of to respond and follow God's will and leading is present. Miracle signs and wonders are more prevalent because they're expected. I think that's enough for now. My throat's already gone anyway, so. All right, I think... Pastor Nathan, did you say you wanted us to take like five minutes or so just for Q&A or something like that? Okay. Um, can, we, can we pass around the mic if you've got a question? I'd be happy to take a shot at it. Somebody be willing to help out take the mic around? I could throw it. <laughs> Anybody? Sorry? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Happy to do what I can. Hi, I was just wondering where you get the definition of uh, words of knowledge. I hear it spoken, or I hear prophecy spoken about a lot in the New Testament, but words of knowledge is just listed um, as a gift and not really expanded upon in the Bible from what I see. So you have to kind of read into scripture a little bit where Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking. So he immediately knew something that he should not have known. It's a word of knowledge. It's a knowledge that he should not have been able to have, but he did have. And as I said, prophecy, every place in the Bible where prophecy, where the actual words are there, it's always got a predictive future element to it. So the difference between the two is future and present. And, we ha- and we're applying words of knowledge to when we, we see it in a few places in Scripture where people knew something that was presently true and say, that must have been a word of knowledge. And so it's, an, it's a, that's an extrapolation of it is really what it is. Does that help a little bit? Yeah.
I just was going to ask if you would pray for us as a congregation before you go. Were you planning on doing that at all? Or like what our next steps would be in our leadership? Sure, I'd be happy to if Pastor Nathan would like me to. I'm not a pastor here, so it's uh, pastors are responsible for their flock, not a visitor. So that's why we honor pastors. This is not totally a question. It, there's a question involved because of it. But first of all, I have to confess my lack so often. I, I, there's one time in my life particularly that I revert back to and think, how could I have done that? I was standing waiting to get the bus in Toronto, and uh, I had a little uh, cross on my lapel. And this woman approached me and she said, uh, why do you wear that? And I said, it's none of your business. Don't you think that I rem remember that so many, many times and I have to confess to the Lord how I failed him at that time. And sad to say, I, I, don't, I still fail him many times. And I just ask the Lord that he gives me the opportunity to witness to people, and sometimes he does. Sometimes I think I have a chance and it, and it doesn't work out, but other times, unexpectedly, I have a chance to witness for him. And I just want to thank him for that and wonder why in the world would I ever do that? And especially now, even if I miss the chances now that I have. Yeah, I, I missed it. About two weeks ago, I missed an opportunity to share my faith with a guy on an airplane. He uh, was talking about children's campgrounds. And, uh, and I told him about Christian campgrounds like that. And he said, well, do you actually believe in God? And I said, sure, I believe in God. He says, well, what's the difference between, you know, like a Tim Hortons kids camp and a church campgrounds? And I said, well, the God factor. And I wish I had answered that question better. I thought about later, I said, you know, the, the thing about, about Jesus is that he changes people's hearts. It's one thing to put different clothes on somebody or give them new opportunities or better education, but only Jesus can change the heart. And I wish I had answered it that way, but I didn't. And so I've got that same type of regret. You know what one of my favorite concepts in the Bible is? Is that the Apostle Paul said, I pray that God would open a door of, of effectual service for me. And there's such a difference between a man-made opportunity and a God-made opportunity, right? And I'd like to pray that God gives me more God opportunities rather than a man-made opportunity. So, and the good news is God casts our sins and our, our regrets and failures into the sea of forgetfulness to never be remembered against us more. We remember, but he, does. he goes, what are you talking about? I don't even remember that. Yeah, he forgets all about it. Yeah. yeah. Most charismatic churches are growing, yes. Um, I spoke at district conference for the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada in the Atlantic region, and I encourage them not to diminish their emphasis on the personal work of the Holy Spirit. Because some Pentecostal churches have tried to pull that down. 
so as not to be considered radical. I said, the person working with the Holy Spirit is your strength. Yes. Don't, don't minimize that. Now, there's not everything about charismatic circles that I like and that I, that I affirm. There's some things that I think they're not entirely right on, but their emphasis on the personal work of the Holy Spirit, I say, don't you stop that. You keep, you keep emphasizing the personal work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. First off, I just want to say thank you to the staff of Moncton Wesleyan for inviting you to come and share, and thank you for your ministry. Um, I as well had the same question as Mrs. Bandy. Um, did you ever consider adding an activation component to train with the information rather than it just being information? Because we all get a lot of information today. You know, knowledge is growing exceedingly from the internet and what we read. Um, but the activation of uh, let's get our hands on, hands into it and 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 watch God move and and so that we're all changed and grow in our faith. But uh, I know that that's coming. And I'm very excited about it, but I just thank you for the opportunity um, for, for sharing with us, and I'm looking forward to what God has in store. So thanks. Thank you. Yeah, I, I feel that my, God's call in my life is to trumpet this issue. Um, I've got a very, very dear friend that is an activator, and he's, he is my go-to person. Um, my activation when, when, we, when we made this transition in Canada is that we started with the church board and with the pastoral staff, and we made sure that we were on board, that people didn't think we were doing something that was wild and crazy, that there was biblical evidence for this and strong historical evidence for it. And so we made sure the leadership team was on the same page together. And then we started by training our prayer altar counselors how to anoint with oil, how to ask for healing as opposed to pronouncing healing unless God gave them a real word, um, encouraging our small groups to lean into the spiritual gifts and to explore those and study those things. And so we were very gentle. Uh, we started implementing things like a minute or two of silence into our services. Most of our services are way overproduced. Uh, even if the Holy Spirit wanted to break in, there's no place for him to break in. And so we would say to the congregation, God doesn't want to just speak to pastors. He wants to speak to all of us. And so let's just be quiet. And like Samuel said, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And again, not everybody that thought that they heard from God was hearing from God. You know, they just had bad pizza the night before. You know? <laughs> but, but we tried to nurture an environment in which we were leaning more heavily into the person of the Holy Spirit. I would much rather put up with the mess that have no move of God in their midst at all. And so, yeah, we had, to, we had to deal with some awkward things, but I wouldn't want to go back to pri prior to 97, from 97 on. What amazing, it was, it was wonderful, until God told me I was supposed to invest in the next generation, and that's why I'm teaching at Bethany, or at Kingswood now. Sorry. Yes. I don't really need this, but I'm going to use it, maybe. Uh, I really like your ingredient to be able to help the Holy Spirit uh, grow in the church. But uh, as being an old dog in Christ since I slept underneath the pews, uh, one of the things that 
I have missed in the last 20 years is testimony. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't brought up, and I'm a firm believer of testimonies that I heard of other people, and uh, boldness gives you the, the opportunity to be able to share uh, of, of misgivings, misdoings, to other people, and they say, "Man, he does just—he did what I just did, or uh, what I'm doing." And uh, by testimony, it really puts life real to people when they say, "Man, he comes to church, and he did what he did." And it's like the 12-step program, right? In the AA program, they say, first you admit you're powerless over alcohol. The next is seek out your higher power." I choose to call my higher power the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm just so glad that I've had eight heart attacks and I'm glad I'm still kicking. And to be able to even stand here, for some people that are doubting, is the Holy Spirit alive? Well, I'm proof. Yeah, I love the verse. Thank you. I love the verse in the book of Revelation where it says, they overcame the evil one by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And there is something particularly powerful about us actually articulating what God is doing in our lives, especially something that's current, not just always appealing back to what happened when we were little boys or little girls. Yeah. Yeah. Can, I tell you, can I tell you one weird story that I heard when I did my Alpha research? It's so weird. Um, so I go to these Alpha courses at the end, and I said, you know, did anybody have an unusual supernatural encounter with God? And, and I was talking to this one group, and as soon as I said that, every eye went like this. And they all looked at this one lady. And I, and I said to the lady, I said, did something unusual happen to you? She said, yes. She said, well, what happened to me was I was in the bathroom. And she says, in the bathroom, in the stall, and I heard somebody call my name. And she said, hello? Nobody answered. She said, oh. I sat there a little bit longer and I heard my name again. Hello? No answer. She said, this time I looked underneath the stove like this. There was nobody else in there. I said, God, is that you? <laughs> and she said, God answered me and told me something was going to happen next week. She said, I was so freaked. I came out of the bathroom and never told a soul. But what God told me was going to happen happened exactly that way the next week. And she said, when I came back to Alpha the next week, she said, I asked them how to become a Christian. Isn't that neat? Yes. It's a non-Christian. Yes. Yeah. Um, I've, I've got a story. Yeah. Um, so I preached a while ago, and uh, the message was called uh, Collective Void. And the reason it was that was, wasn't that I think that's a cool word. That's because a word came to uh, Susan Downey, one of our staff members, in a board meeting. It was very distinct, and she spoke it out not even knowing what it meant. And I immediately knew that's what I was supposed to speak on. So I prepared a message called Collective Void. And then I happened to be out at the Cafe Kodiak uh, meeting with someone, supposed to be talking about missions. And someone from the church brought over a friend and said, hey, I want to introduce you to Pastor Nathan. And we very quickly uh, accidentally got in an argument <laughs> about how to best help some people. And, uh, and so if that's lifestyle, evangelism, or anything, I was getting a zero <laughs> out of 100. Anyway, uh, 
found her on Facebook, said, hey, sorry about the spirit of that. God bless you. And then I got up and I preached uh, on Sunday morning. And uh, then I'll let her tell the rest of the story. Yeah, that was quite the lead up. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Pastor Nathan's right. I guess, um, I think it was April 26th. Um, my name's Krista, by the way. Um, this used to be my church probably over 20 years ago. Um, and for whatever reasons, I walked away from the church. I walked away from any sort of collective religion at all. Didn't believe in it. Had nothing, wanted nothing to do with it. Didn't want to raise my children that way. Um, and on April 26th, I believe it was, when Pastor Nathan was uh, having his sermon, I was sitting at home watching it on YouTube because uh, it's a live stream. And I was in my pajamas and I was sitting with my robe uh, and it was 12 o'clock and the Holy Spirit spoke to me at that time and said, you, you don't belong to the collective void. You need to uh, come back, come back, come back to me and go to church and go to church now. So at 12 o'clock, I got myself up out of my desk chair and I went and washed my face, brushed my hair and threw on some clothes and came to church and church was over, of course. <laughs> um, but they happened to be having the program upstairs where they were meet the pastor day and yeah, so I came back. I didn't realize I was that argumentative though. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told it's me, not you. Um, so the amazing thing is, uh, you know, Krista was far from God. And because of a word from God that spoke to her very directly. In fact, when I said the word collective void, God spoke to her and said, I want you to be part of a collective voice now and not trying to fix everything on your own. And, and so she came in and she did catch the prayer ministry at the end of the church service. I looked down there and she's there like, oh my goodness, you know, like, anyway. Um, and she's come back to Christ and, and is now serving already in our church and uh, is going to take uh, me and whoever else wants to come, I guess, uh, down to one of the tent cities this week and, and, and try to say, see where the real problems are uh, in our city. So that's what God's doing. And I just want to share the story because it illustrates everything you've been trying to share with us, that when God speaks and when God moves and, and, and the Holy Spirit's at work, much, much more will be accomplished than any other way. Um, Pastor Pat, I just want to uh, give you a second to speak because Pat, this, this caught Pat before it caught me even. And uh, I just want to give you a chance to say, we're so excited that you guys are all here. What a great turnout. 120, 130 people. It's wonderful. Fantastic. So good. Uh, I just want to, um, you know, we talked about what are the next steps? You know, where do we go from here now that we have this information? And one of the amazing things about the Holy Spirit is that he leads us and guides us. Okay, he doesn't take us from zero to 60 overnight. It's a process. And I don't know about you, but I've been sensing God leading us over the last, I'm going to say, close to nine months. And so this journey... Uh, for, for me, almost began when we went to Florida as pastors. Uh, we went to the, to the district conference in Florida. And it's interesting how sometimes we will fly for four hours to hear somebody speak that lives 30 minutes away. <laughs> okay. So we went to a breakout session with Dr. Elliot. 
And I picked up his book, and for the next few months, I began reading his book over. And, and, and this book kept coming up in our staff meetings and conversations about the Holy Spirit. And so I just want to conclude by this. What are the next steps? In the last nine months, we have added a prayer team at the end of our service where we are seeing the miraculous happen. We are seeing the power of God happen in our prayer times. Uh, what are some other next steps? We have a class called Freedom, which allows the Holy Spirit to deal with things and show us and reveal uh, more of areas that, that we need to give over to God, which allows an understanding how to be led by the Holy Spirit. In the fall, we're going to be launching uh, a big Alpha class, and we're going to have the Holy Spirit weekend as a part of that Alpha Okay, so we are, we, are, we are just seeing God just lead us. And, you know, we've heard about testimonies. We're looking for ways in our services how we can give testimonies of what God is doing because that builds our faith. And as our faith increases, we begin to see God do, do more and more things. Okay, so we leave here. And some of us may, uh, maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to some of us. Maybe we need to fast. Maybe we need to spend more time with God. So I'm just asking you to say, Holy Spirit, continue prompting and leading me in these areas. And I believe as individuals, as we are obedient, corporately God is leading us as a church to see more of the power of God. All right? And let's just be reminded that that is not to glorify man, but it's to bring glory to him and to lead people to Jesus. All right? So I'm going to ask you guys to stand, and, and I'm going to ask Dr. Elliot if he would uh, close us in prayer. And, and we are so thankful for you and your wife coming today. And we believe that God has positioned you for such a time of, as this in our nation to bring what he has placed in your heart not just to Moncton and not just to Sussex, but his reach is across the nation, okay? And so I believe, again, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing across Canada, all right? So if you would lead us in prayer. So we believe in the priesthood of all believers. So if you would mind laying a hand on somebody beside you, if they're comfortable with that, would you mind just laying a hand, if you're comfortable with it? Father, thank you for your incredible goodness towards us. You treat us way, way better than we deserve. If you treated us the way that we deserve, you'd have to annihilate us immediately. But you're full of goodness and mercy and patience and kindness, and we're so undeserving. And just like the psalmist said, what is man that thou art even mindful of him? The son of man, you even care for him. You're the God who stretches out your hand and touches side to side in the universe. You hold all the waters of the world in the hollow of one hand. And the nations of the world and the islands are like little grains of dust in your fingers. You spoke a word and billions of stars came into being and you call them all by name. And we are so much less than you are. But we're so grateful that you one day allowed us to be adopted into your family, that you allowed us to know your good news, that God so loved the world that you sent your only son into this world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through your son might have life, and that if we would believe on you, we could be adopted into your family. 
We're thankful, Father, that when your son returned to heaven, he makes intercession for us at your right hand. And we're thankful, Father, that you saw in your wisdom to send into this world your Holy Spirit to be our comforter and our guide, the one who purifies our heart, the one who empowers us, the one who gives good gifts. We're thankful, Father, for all that you do for us. And I do pray, Father, for a mighty move of your spirit in our midst. I pray for this community. You are more anxious that the people of Moncton and Dieppe and the surrounding areas be saved than we are. And we pray, Father, that we would be the people and this would be the type of place that you would deem to work in and through us ways that would advance your glory and kingdom. If there be any amount of pride or arrogance in us, we humble ourselves before you and say, God, have mercy on us. If there's any hidden sin within us, we ask God for your empowerment, that we be victorious to live over sin. We ask, Father, that you would work anything about rebellion in us that it would be gotten rid of. I pray, Father, if there's any fractions in relationships, if there's any tension, if there's any gossip or complaining or whining or anything, Father, that would hinder the work of your spirit in our midst, we ask God for mercy upon that. May we be the type of people that you deem that you want to work in and through. I thank you, Father, for your good gifts. Thank you for the diversity of gifts that you give. And you choose to give this gift to one person, you give another gift to the other person. But all together, all the gifts and all the people, we accurately represent who you are in this world. So I thank you, Father, for this time together. I thank you, Father, for the priesthood of believers. And I pray, Father, that we would go from this place with your blessing. And I pray, God, as we pray this blessing out loud, that you would deem to empower it and make it a reality. So congregation, would you repeat these words with me? The Lord bless you, Lord bless you. And, keep you. and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, Lord, and, be you. and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you, and give you peace. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Well, thanks again, Dr. Elliot. Thanks for all the people that made the sweets and, and treats for us. There's books at the back, maybe a few left if you want to get some. Helen, thank you so much for donating your husband for the day and being with us. God bless everyone. <laughs>